Hello and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast that's all about food, body, sport, and mental health. The Appetite is brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment program in Seattle. I'm your host, Carter Umhow, a therapist at Opal, an artist, and writer. Today, Opal co-founder Erkara Bazi joins me to reflect on the overemphasis of weight within sport performance. As a former collegiate athlete that struggled with an eating disorder, Kara has an insider view into how attitudes around weight in sports can lead to a disordered or even toxic team culture. We'll be debunking some myths around the importance of weight in sports, so stick around for when dietitian Kelly Finan joins us to explain why weight loss really does not necessarily signify an increase in athletic performance. Kara Bazi, I'm the clinical director at Opal. So this is a bittersweet time for me. I think on the sweet side, it's fall. Um, Fall represents fall sports to me, cross-country season. I think of the many years that I participated in that sport. Um, My husband is a coach for cross-country, and he's been doing that for the last 15 years. And then this year, it's really exciting because my daughter has actually just started cross-country. And it's been fun to watch her take up the sport and really enjoy it. But I also say it's bittersweet because of the history I've had also with the sport that has been hard and difficult and brings up um, just conversation about eating disorders, compulsive exercise, and my own history around that. Considering how much you were struggling with food, I imagine that the team culture was, was maybe even supportive of that. Can you tell us a little bit about what the team culture looked like? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because eating disorders are so complex. There's so many factors. But yeah, for me, um, the team culture and the coaching uh, were part of uh, the start of my eating disorder. Um, I certainly don't, I don't believe in blaming particular parts, but it was part of the equation, right? And so um, I think in my team, there was a lot of things going on amongst teammates that was seen as normative. And now looking back, I'm like, I, it's, it's almost hard to imagine that that we all believe that that was just normal behavior, such as not eating enough food. Um, I, I mean, I was aware of some teammates that were purging. And and yet, in, in my mind, all of this was kind of in the name of athletics and doing what you need to do to perform well. Here we were in the college scene, which was so much more intense than in high school. And so it's sad, but I really did see it as normal and didn't question it until many years later. I'm curious about kind of what the messages were for you around what would happen if you did gain weight back once you were recovering mm-hmm. from your eating disorder. So for me, when I got on the team, there was kind of an assumption that I would lose weight regardless just because of the extra training. Cause I was again, coming from a basketball background and I hadn't, the mileage that I was running was pretty low in high school. Um, so there's just kind of an assumption that with all the training I was going to have, I was going to lose weight, which that's an interesting assumption to make too. Mm. <laughs> um, in it. And so, but my extra training and I was highly restrictive, which I, again, I wouldn't have classified it as that at the time. Um, my weight dropped significantly and my performance did improve but really what changed things for me was that eventually I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't keep that up. And so I did start binging and going through more of a restricting and binging cycle. Um, and my weight kind of fluctuated all over the board as a result of that. And, I, and again, there wasn't any direct messages about my weight at the time and how that was going to be impacting performance. But I think it was kind of one of those unspoken 
um, watching other athletes and hearing kind of comments other people would make about um, that bias that a lot of the distance running community has that thinner is better, thinner is going to be faster. And me just trying to scramble because I, w- I just wanted I wanted to do my best and I felt like it was I couldn't make myself stop binging and I thought of it as a will problem. And that was really difficult for me given that I was such an achiever and I could usually accomplish anything I wanted. But that was back when I felt like I could kind of play God, I guess, on my body and, and control it and, and manipulate it. And I just couldn't do it. So I, I was very down on myself. And I I bet for a lot of people hearing that you can't play God on your body is actually not obvious. Mm -hmm. Um, There are so many messages that really we should be able to control our weight and we should be able to control what we eat. So I think I would just want to point that out, especially as you talk about restricting for so long and then binging. Of course you were. You know, if you weren't, if you weren't eating properly, your body was desperate for food. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, just just to put that out there, that some of that really can't be controlled at some point. Right. And I, I, at that point, had no compassion for just biology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, I thought it was more of a, a, a will, a, like my own control. Like I wasn't controlled enough, which is just ridiculous at this point looking back. But yeah. So when you did start running again, how did it go? So when I, so when I um, graduated... I actually ended my senior season with a stress fracture, which was devastating. But there was something in me as an athlete that just wasn't satisfied with kind of ending, I guess, with that now that I call it like that bias um, around weight and performance. And I was determined, there was something in me that was determined to prove otherwise. <laughs> the fighter in me that says, I, you know, I is this really true? Was I only fast because I was anorexic. And I was doing enough work around myself at that point to be able to really engage that question. And I knew I could, I knew at that point I could tolerate if the answer was yes. So you were only fast because you're anorexic. Um, And I knew that could be a possibility, but I wanted to see, I, I really wanted to have data points. And so at this point I was fully nourished. I had restored weight and I just, I I gathered data points. I remember at one point my husband was coaching me. I also ran for Club Northwest for a stint. And I remember training for the the half marathon and it was sort of going to be my (laughs) quote unquote, one of my quote unquote tests that I was doing um, because I'd run a half in college. And, And I actually trained well for it. And, you know, in that, in that race, I was 15 pounds heavier and I I was actually slightly faster than that that half marathon that I did in in um, college, and there was something really meaningful about having that kind of information to break, to poke at this belief system around weight and performance, and to see, you know what I yeah that is possible, and I think that this that opened up just this curiosity that I had that I was hungry to know more like. What are other athletes where the, this is their story too? And, you know, and, and like the, not only what are athletes that have this story, but if that's the case, how sad that so many athletes are just in misery trying to get that peak performance and doing things to manipulate their weight and, you know, preoccupied with food and destroying themselves to get there. When what if they don't have to do that? You know, it sounds almost too good to be true, but I, you know, I, I would say now, I mean, with my relationship with with running how it is, I certainly believe that's a possibility. The scary part is it's not guaranteed, 
but that it is even a possibility. And so through this last, gosh, I've you know been in the field since 2002, mental health field, and worked with lots of athletes. And I, I could... I could easily tell you um, a handful of athletes that I've worked with that are that were distance runners, at least in my, yeah, in my sport, who have proved that wrong, who had had this belief that they had this race weight or this small little range of race, race weight, and they were willing to experiment and to reco- like eat adequately and nourish themselves, and their weight changed, you know, um, to some degree, and they were able to perform just as well, if not better, and so. Mm-hmm. I just think I want that message out there because I think we need to question that at least at least question it at least poke at it mm-hmm. um, because as far as I understand there isn't science that's pointing to that there is a race particular weight that someone needs to be for peak performance in distance running in you know in in all these these more aesthetic demand or weight demand sports that there isn't a particular way we need to be. So I'd love to actually get some of the science around this. You know? <laughs> um, so we have Kelly here. Hi, I'm Kelly Finan. I'm the sports dietitian with Opal, and I completed my undergraduate education and graduate education at University of Washington and um, got a lot of my experience in sports nutrition working there and have since joined the Opal team. So Kelly, as a dietitian, what would you say about... Like why Kara would maybe be able to actually perform better at a higher weight? Yeah, I think um, in many sports, especially those that are focused on weight as something that can be manipulated to enhance performance, um, that there may be an initial temporary increase in performance following restriction or just engaging in really controlling behaviors with diet and exercise. So the explanation for that comes from kind of an initial, well, related to relative energy deficiency in sport, just the initial temporary increase in performance that's kind of associated with almost a, a euphoric state and then the body actually becoming more efficient in taking up oxygen and that leading to some performance improvements. So those are short-lived, though, I think is the key key point with that. A lot of athletes do see an initial improvement, but then that's quickly followed by risk for injury and leading to injuries, stress fractures, illness, things like that. So there would definitely be sort of that positive reinforcement of like, oh, some weight has been lost. I'm doing so well. This yeah. is going great. And then. Yeah. And then, yeah, down. that's that's where it's um, really temporary. And just seeing the impacts of the body not having enough energy to support continued movement, engagement in sport. That's where, yeah, the risk for injuries high and illness and then the, just the stress of being in that state of low energy availability. Okay. So when you talk about there being only a short-lived amount of kind of peak performance or at least improved performance, what do you mean by short? How, yeah, well, like? I mean, so that can vary so much, I think, athlete to athlete. But I would say in terms of long-term energy availability, there there are often impacts on internal body systems that you may not be realizing that could happen before the performance impacts. So changes in hormones, um, the the changes in immune functioning, things like that, that could be happening earlier on. But there's no no set timeline. And I think once athletes start to see those performance decreases or impacts of low energy availability on performance, that's when they often recognize like, okay, what's going on? What's happening? But So Kelly, in, in my situation though, when I had gained the weight, 
how was how can you explain how I was able to perform um, actually slightly better than my lowest mm-hmm. weight when I did have that initial performance mm-hmm. improvement? Yeah, well, so that's where I think the focus on weight for performance is can be harmful for athletes because it doesn't address the importance of fueling on performance. So focus on weight is something that's hard because weight is not something you can control or manipulate directly. Um, focus on fueling, though, to optimize performance, that can lead to a lot of benefit for not only performance, but health and just longevity in sports. So I think um, with adequate energy intake and just really fueling for your sport, that's where you see benefits for recovery and muscle building and body composition and and really just supports performance long term. Is there anything you would say about maybe the emphasis on highly structured diet for body composition changes that would be relevant to this as well? Yeah. I can imagine that kind of being a slippery slope too. Yeah. I think with individual clients or athletes, there's always kind of what thinking about what's going to be best for them and what really is going to support health and sometimes the recovery process and also performance in sport as it's relevant. So I think looking at the evidence-based guidelines that exist at the time and really turning to the research and seeing, okay, what's best for performance, but also best for health. So Focusing on fueling and some specific strategies nutrition-wise that could be helpful. Uh, Things like training low or what nutrients to emphasize when in the diet could be helpful for performance instead of focusing on things that are restrictive. So I think specific strategies to really optimize one's nutrition status are really effective and helpful, but that doesn't mean that it's restrictive or dieting. Okay. Yeah. So I think thinking about the difference between fueling nutrition strategies versus a focus on weight, there's such a difference there. Amen to that. Yeah. I think just thinking about all of the factors that impact performance beyond nutrition and beyond body composition. So things like sleep, stress levels, um, thinking about the bigger picture and controlling the factors with performance or the factors that impact performance that you can. Because weight is not something that you can control, really. You can focus on optimizing body composition through nutrition, but you can't control what your weight is. What do you tell people that say, yes, you can control what your weight is? I would say you have to think about like how much of your weight or set point is from your genes or encoded in your DNA. So the, the saying that you can't fool Mother Nature, I think, is so relevant and really like important to recognize. Yeah. That maybe you could lose some weight temporarily or something like that. But at the end of the day, your body and your particular DNA is going to require or wind up looking a certain way. Yeah, that, that your body wants to be at a certain place with weight to support health and performance. And if you're forcing yourself or trying to get to a weight that is not in that set point range, that's where um, you're going to see those performance impacts or the performance consequences and health consequences. Yeah. Your body's going to fight you. Yeah. Every step of the way. So you're saying that if I wouldn't have been restrictive and manipulated my weight for that period of time, then I could have succeeded even more. I, I, I would like to think, it, yeah, that, you know, it, you know it's hard, hard to say, hard to say, but um, there's so much benefit to focusing on fueling strategies and nutrition for long-term performance and health, not just the short-term. So I think in terms of recovery, building muscle, preventing illness or injury, there would be definite benefit to more consistent, adequate food intake to support performance. Love it. 
Thank you so much, Kelly. Yeah. So, Kara, what would it mean if actually weight wasn't the main factor in improving performance? You know, what I often see and I felt as an athlete and what I see with my clients with um, their sport experiences is if we emphasize weight, um, then it's kind of, I, I can't help but think about placebo effect, right? So if somebody is saying like, this is exactly what I need to, these are the specific conditions that I need to do to do well. And sadly, if we can't control our weight very easily, that can be a very difficult place to be in that actually could negatively impact our performance. But what if it's because that's what we believe? Placebo effect is real. And so if we actually turn towards other performance factors that we have more, that, that are more in our control, like, I mean, nutrition could be one of those. What, what, how are we, how are we feeding ourselves? Um, how are we, managing our relationships? How are we making decisions about sleep? How are we being free though? I think a lot of, um, where's the joy and the play in our life? Because for, for those athletes that are especially on the over-controlled side, I think a lot of times they're just focused. I think they're focusing too much on the little things. I focus too much on the little things. Then I wasn't having any fun. And that actually, I think, impeded my performance. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I think is probably most attractive about watching sports is the magic of it. Yeah. And so when we think about the athlete, we think about someone that has this power in their body and that then performs this magical feat. Um, what seems to be happening most often in the sport world is that that seems to be kind of over-controlled then, the, this idea of the athlete being a powerhouse. Okay, how can we make the athlete even more powerful? How can we make sure that this person's performance is at peak based off of this weight, based off of this intake, based off of yada, yada, yada. And so what I hear in all of this too is just like, what does it, what does it mean if the athlete's not a machine? Exactly. And what would it mean if we were able to also psychologically investigate a little bit more of the magic that could happen too? Exactly. I think you're hitting on something really important of just the robot versus the art. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about if there are other athletes that you can think of that sort of serve as examples of maybe where this assumption around weight isn't true. Well, the first person that I think of that's been pretty outspoken in the running community is Allie Kiefer. So okay. she was uh, the gal who ran in the New York City Marathon um, and was second American to cross the finish line. And she's been very outspoken about trying to conform to kind of the runner ideal weight and feeling that pressure. And then in doing so, she was restricting and and her performance suffered as a result of that. So she let go and nourished herself better. And she had a 26-minute PR. Um, so we need more stories out there like that. I think especially for athletes who... You know, there, there is something to be said about the athletes that garner respect of people that are doing it in the high levels and and to, to give that role model, to, to model that for us. Athletes that are free in the relationship with food, free in the relationship with their body, and they're performing really well. So she's she's definitely somebody who's who's outspoken. I think Lauren Fleshman's another one in the distance running community that's spoken openly about it. But sadly, there's a lot of people that are taken down by it. And then they don't even, then they end up oftentimes just leaving the sport because 
they're trying so hard to do this and then their life becomes miserable. Because they've turned themselves into a machine. Yeah. Or someone else has. Yeah. And then who wants to do something that's that miserable for years and years? Joy, people. There's some some joy to be had. (laughs) And I can't help thinking about kids. I really can't help thinking about kids. I think the competitive environment right now in in sports is, is notable and it's getting younger and younger. And I certainly hope that we're cultivating joy with our youth athlete athletes and not emphasizing kind of this machine mentality. Maybe a strange question, but why is everyone obsessed with sports? (laughs) I don't say that in a critical way, (laughs) not at all, but just like, I just had sort of a like stepping back moment. Like what, why is there so much pressure even for a elementary school kid to suddenly become obsessed with sports like what well I wonder what yeah. that is about I mean I don't that's a it's a great question Carter I'm not entirely sure I do know that there is just this this could be extrapolated beyond sport but sort of this I'm a, like almost if I don't do this now what's gonna ha- what's gonna be the negative consequence so if I don't get my kid into this sport are they going to miss out? Because if the other kids started this young and they've done this training and this this competitive stuff, you know, they're going to have the edge over, over my kid and they might not have as many options. I would say it's coming from like a restricted mentality mm-hmm. of we don't have abundance of options with elite sports and opportunities for college and professional athletics, especially when it comes to yeah, training and development. And so if I don't get my kid in it now or yesterday – then they're not going to have the opportunities. So I think it's pretty opportunity-driven, especially from a parent's perspective. You know, I mean, we could get into the rising cost of education, mm-hmm. scholarships. That could be a big motivation if people are afraid they're not going to be able to afford their child's education. And that's, you know, athletes get a lot of privilege when it comes to, you know, education and and scholarship and money and funding and yeah. all those things, right? Yeah. And I mean, it's really striking to think about opportunity being such a big part of this. Mm-hmm. You know, I had spoken earlier about the idealization of the athlete and had been I've been thinking that this time just about kind of the Roman athlete mm. um, in the Coliseum and how many people would come to watch um, and how these bodies were deified in a lot of ways. But to even then think now about um, maybe kids from much lower socioeconomic status and their bodies are their ticket. Yep. I was reading about something in the French win for the World Cup. Uh, I was watching Trevor Noah's late night show talking about some congratulatory statement he'd made about, wow, you know, the entire French team is African. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And the I think it was like the ambassador or the prime minister. I don't know. The president of France maybe had responded and said, no, they're not African. They're French. And he was doing some incredible racial, racial commentary on that statement. Um, but the thing that I really gleaned from it and feels relevant here is that the sport world brings people in in order to profit mm-hmm. <laughs> from them. Mm-hmm. So as we're talking about you know, a distance runner being able to find their peak performance at a particular weight. Of, of course, there's a kind of a larger umbrella system that's asking this this mm-hmm. runner, this African soccer player to 
become a bit of a machine for their establishment. And that's where, you know, high performance is a big deal. And I can I can understand that on a lot of levels. I think the thing that I just want to keep challenging is it is it necessary to sacrifice these components of being a human in order to be a peak performer? And that's the piece that I just, I think we do way too much of that. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's necessary. But I think we're, I think people believe it's necessary and that's why people do it or else why would you do that? if you didn't think it was necessary, right? Like I, um, we went to a conference last year and the Victory Conference, which is Eating Disorder and Sport Conference. And one of the presenters worked for the International Olympic Committee and she was the sports psychologist for the combative sports. And it was fascinating to hear about their experience because these boxers were low SES athletes who were doing incredibly dangerous practices to make weight. And they had to be flown over to their international competition. And if they didn't make weight, they couldn't compete. And they didn't have the money. The IOC wasn't paying for their ticket back. So they didn't have the money to fly home from, from, you know, being abroad. And so, of course, they're going to, I mean, they're going to do anything to be able to stay. Yes. I mean, so I think there is a lot, there's a lot of that. And yet... I just, I, I can't help but wonder if they described why weight class sports started to begin with. And they talked about, we're, we're just trying to have more fair matches, right? But then because of performance, people are trying to manipulate that to, to come out on top. So there's just a lot to be motivated to come out on top. <laughs> so it's tricky. I mean, I, I felt like I, that, w- that was a lot. I had a lot of pause hearing that story of just like, that is a really hard place to be to help those athletes when you know them flying home is on the line you know I, I don't even know like they did they didn't have the resources and the bodies are just being destroyed exactly I even feel weird just having said the bodies right but at some point I mean thinking about someone that's having to drop weight that quickly and then left in whatever place they didn't make weight exactly or the you know NFL players that are losing their brain function Mm -hmm. from repeated concussions like so many it's an ethical question right like it's at what what cost at what cost and and does the athlete get to choose that but I would also propose that you know how informed is the athlete again are they really making an educated informed decision at what of the at what cost question right like how much information are they getting the actual appropriate information too like how many athletes are educated about reds and adequate nourishment and and the effects of malnutrition and the long-term psychological impact that that can have on on themselves right like i don't i, I doubt they're getting i doubt many athletes are getting that kind of education no i don't i don't assume so yeah so it's just it's it's hard i feel like that's where i have so much energy around how can we get this message out there to more people and at least if if it's something that you're not sure if if there's some, if there's something you're not sure about at least we're asking the question and wondering and seeing if we can go about this differently with the same goal of of i mean performance doesn't have to be just taken off the table i think that the me too movement has just impacted lots of different systems and certainly what happened with Larry Nasser has gotten a lot of press. And I do think people are having to, athletic departments and sport organizations are having to to now actually 
pause and consider things in a different way than they ever have before. Things aren't tolerated in the way that they had. And um, there's a lot, there's still a lot of shifting and changing that needs to occur around how um, we are caring for our athletes. You know, I think mental health is an interesting one because in most athletic departments, the mental health services just pale, like the the amount that is invested is pales in comparison to a lot of the things that have to do with the physical training, the equipment, the training room, the uniform, you know, all of the money that is is put into sports um, and just such a tiny little drop of fraction is put into mental health. And so, you know, I would love to see that just grow and and mental health and psychology to be elevated um, as a more important factor, because I certainly know, and we see this in the news, all these mental health things that come out with really incredible, famous athletes. And again, at what cost? Here they, it's like after somebody's performed really well, and then they go through, you know, drug rehab or, um, you know, the drug and alcohol piece of it is also a, a huge cost that can, that can occur that isn't getting attended to probably well enough. Um, so yeah, both the actual hell that someone could go through because they're trying to tolerate how much the pressure is on them, mm-hmm. um, maybe something that they're doing to themselves, but then, of course, also being in a system full of power and no emphasis on caring for the athlete as a whole person. Right. It makes a lot of sense that there could be, you know, sexual, emotional, psychological abuse right. within any of those systems, right. given how much power there is and and how much pressure there is to, to perform. Mm-hmm. So given the fact that there is such a power dynamic and the sports world is just powerful in and of itself, I'm curious what you think, Kara, about why or how the, um, the coach could change all this. Yeah, well, I certainly don't think all of it is on the coach, although the coach has such power in an athlete's life, certainly more than treatment providers typically do. <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, I just feel like the, the basic thing is for a coach to address this, like reflect on this, ask themselves, what is their, what are their beliefs around weight and performance? What are their beliefs around nutrition and performance? Kind of have an assessment of, of where they're at and then also get resources and, and get the support. And I mean, there, there's a humility involved in that. And I think that can sometimes be hard given that a lot of a coach is about having, a, you know, an authoritative presence. But, I, I, you know, it's not like coaches have, you know, training um, around these topics and they're very complex. I mean, I just I would hope that that there, there's so many resources and we'll make links on this episode of, of where coaches can get some more information and some specifics of sound, good information around mm-hmm. nutrition and weight um, and body image and eating disorder issues. And. I also think whatever system that this coach is a part of also has to be a part of the change agent um, to support coaches in getting educated, um, thinking about prevention in a a larger context, because certainly we want to, we, it would be much better if we could um, address this in a prevention standpoint before athletes are farther down the path and it's really difficult to make changes. So I would, I would want to see, look at it more systemically. I think of, some of the um, 
screenings and things that have become mandatory around concussions. And I would love more things to be implemented that are mandatory when it comes to eating disorder education within the sports teams and systems at the kind of even all levels, um, university setting, professional athletics, um, education set, you know, high school athletes, youth athletes, even a little bit of training would go a long way. Yeah. Sarah Taylor, our uh, production assistant, was also mentioning before the episode, too, just what a crazy thing that there is now more emphasis on brain function and not necessarily on mental health, as if they're not somehow connected as well. Exactly. So I just love that point because there is becoming more and more screening for, um, you know, concussion. But Mm -hmm. what about all the other things that would really impact um, someone's brain function and also their life. Exactly. Like I think of even with my kids, all the forms I have to do for each of their sports. (laughs) And yeah, where, where's the, where's the food and body stuff? Like there's just, there's a lot of opportunity, I think, but it does take time and thought. And I know a lot of these systems are under a lot of pressure and time constraint and that's a barrier. Yeah. I think we can it's certainly a lot of time and resources when someone develops an eating disorder. So we can save the energy on that end <laughs> and put it into the prevention side. Sounds Brilliant, right? Yes. <laughs> Before we end today, Kara is going to be sharing her letter to her coach. This is a piece that both highlights the athlete's experience on a team, but also really is a bit of a call to all the coaches out there to really explore and think about issues of eating and food and weight within their team culture. Dear coach, let's get reacquainted. I know there's been some tension in our relationship, and I'm hoping we can clear the air by getting to understand each other better. This is what I assume about you. You're doing your best, period. I also assume that some days you probably enjoy the influence you have with your athletes, and some days you wish you didn't hold so much power. Or maybe you don't even know how much power you have. I also assume that you haven't had much training with body image issues and disordered eating. I imagine it is tempting to not say anything on this subject for fear of saying something wrong. And if you do give nutrition advice or tell an athlete to change their weight, I assume you're well-meaning and believe this advice will help your athlete. I also assume you've had a lot of pressure about how your athletes perform. I can't imagine how difficult it would be to hold that responsibility. I think that type of pressure would certainly impact your decision-making and maybe lead you into murky waters as a coach. Lastly, I assume there's so much I don't know about your reality. As a fellow human, you have your own personal life that impacts you on a daily basis, both for the positive and the difficult. I hold a lot of empathy for you. To be honest, this hasn't always been the case. As an athlete, I adored you. In my recovery process from an eating disorder, I felt confusion, anger towards you, and didn't know how to make sense of our relationship and the power you held in my life. Now, many years later, as a mental health provider and eating disorder specialist, I can fully appreciate the complexity of the relationship between you and I. Let's go back. When I was an athlete, I adored you. I would give anything to make you proud of me and would do anything you told me or that I perceived you wanted from me. I wanted your attention and quickly perceived that being a top athlete would secure my relationship with you. So I tried hard, very hard, and I did everything in my power to be the fastest I could be. 
By following the practices of the faster, older teammates, I introduced food restriction into my life. It started slowly, but the ramp-up was disturbingly quick. I ate less, 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 and at the same time, my times dropped and dropped to the point where I was on a podium for a championship meet. Now let's be clear, that year was a blast. I didn't know I had a problem. In fact, I thought I was the subject of some sort of miracle God thing that took over my body and allowed me to race so quickly. But the subsequent years proved otherwise. During the next year's season was my first nightly food binge, and then as fast as I had fallen into food restriction patterns, I was now deep into a daily restriction binge cycle that would last for the remaining years of my collegiate career. My scientific, logical brain was convinced that I could will myself out of this pattern. I just needed to figure out how to stop binging and all would return to normal. So much denial. So much fight in me to keep running well. Pleasing you was the top priority. By my last year in school, I finally accepted that my times were never going to touch those from freshman year, and I might as well enjoy the team and find other ways to make an impact. Boy, that was a heartbreaking reality, but I finally let it sink in. That was almost two decades ago. Guess what, coach? The pain and suffering was not all in vain. After I graduated, I got help, and I used my athletic tenacity to dig deep, search for truth, and pursued an answer to the question, was I only fast because I was anorexic? It took me a couple years to truly be brave enough to find out the answer to this question. I first needed to work on me and find out some of my inherent worth outside of performance in order to be open to test the question. And test it I did. I was racing again, this time in a nourished body, this time with a more intact psychological health. And guess what? I could still be fast. Not only could I still be fast in my bigger body, I felt so much more joy in my relationship with running. And therein lies my life's work and passion, to help other athletes to discover that they don't have to compromise their mental health and their bodies to perform. I have now worked with hundreds of athletes and hold hundreds of stories of athletes like me young women who have done their best to achieve in sport and find themselves broken and suffering from the complexity of disordered eating and body image concerns. These are smart women, intuitive women, sensitive women, badass women. It's a gift and privilege to walk alongside them and offer alternative paths. You get to coach these gems. So now here comes the part where I think I can help you. I have learned so much from my journey, but so much more from all the young women I've had the pleasure of knowing. I feel inspired to use my position of power and my developed voice to pass on advice that you might consider. Get to know your athletes as a whole person. Although many athletes exude confidence, this is a culture that breeds low self-esteem and an underdeveloped sense of self, and athletes are not exempt. Your athletes need to know that you care about them beyond their performance. Ask them about their life outside sport. Show interest. Invest in them. You are like a pseudo-parent. They desire to feel your care as an embodied person. Reflect their goodness for being, not just doing. Do not stay silent on food and body image issues, please. Your athletes who are at risk for disordered eating are sensitive. They will likely interpret your silence as, one, you not caring about the issue, two, you endorsing disordered practices in the name of performance success, or three, you being indifferent. These interpretations may not be accurate, but your athletes won't know unless you tell them. Have a no-tolerance policy on food and body talk. Create a culture on your team where athletes know they can't make disparaging comments about their bodies, others' bodies, and food. No good food, bad food. Remove judgment. 
And if an athlete makes a disparaging comment about food or their body and you hear it, stop it right there. You're providing powerful modeling by holding to the boundary to protect the athlete and the team culture. Don't talk negative about food or your own body. What you say about your body and about food are just as important as what you're saying to others. Your athletes are listening and trying to discern all the time about your belief systems, so be cautious. Encourage adequate eating. Support more permission with eating. Do not encourage your athletes to diet or restrict food intake. If you try to control your athletes' eating habits, you're setting them up to rebel and make those restricted foods more enticing. Instead, give them suggestions they can experiment with and learn about their own body's wisdom with fueling and performance. Help give your athletes a long-term vision for, of their life. When athletes are in college, they're in a life stage where they're mostly connected to the short term. They feel invincible and are not motivated by how their actions behavior now might impact their future. Gently remind them with your wisdom. You've lived more years than them and have perspective about life that is rich and important to share. Get to know the resources in your community. Although you play a big role in your athletes' lives, you're not the person that will be offering professional treatment for disordered eating and body image issues. This should come as a relief. As such, take time to figure out who you can work well with. Start with a dietitian, mental health therapist, and a doctor that understand and have expertise with eating disorders. And if your community doesn't have these resources, visit NIDA online to provide guidance. Coach, what a big role you play. Please get the support you need as this is a tough job. I want to support you and be a part of a movement to keep helping you and your coaching peers to be successful and healthy. I'm full of hope. Yours sincerely, Mental Health Therapist. Thanks so much for joining us today. And thanks to Jackstraw Cultural Center for sound engineering, to Aaron Davidson for the Appetite's music, and to Sarah Taylor for production assistance and editing. Thanks also, of course, to Kelly Finan for joining us as a contributor today. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Appetite on your preferred podcast app so you can follow along as new content is released. If you or someone you know is struggling with an eating disorder and you're hoping to learn more about potential resources for recovery, visit www.opalfoodandbody.com. You can follow along with The Appetite and Opal on Opal's Facebook or Twitter. And if you ever have any questions or comments for us, please feel free to reach out to us at theappetite at opalfoodandbody.com. Thanks again and talk to you soon.